Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, this time uh, we'll dismiss any children we have, five and older, to our children's church in the back. And everyone else, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to be in verses uh, 1 through 10 this morning. Uh, Allow me to uh, read God's word, and then we'll pray for God's help in discerning it this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the, that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This is the word of the Lord. So let's go before him in prayer this morning and ask for his help. Father, I pray that the prayer of the psalmist from Psalm 119, 18 would be our prayer this morning. That you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. By your divine inspiration, the author of Hebrews has highlighted much from the Old Covenant, from your law to your people, Israel. And we need your help this morning to see, to learn, to respond, and to find, even in these things that the author is writing, that he wants to lead us to the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May you guide us to that. May you guide my words. May you guide our hearts. And may we fall more in love with Jesus as a result of what we've heard from your word this morning. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. We love you. Amen.
I heard this quote once from an unknown writer. It's one that's stuck with me and really even shaped me over the years. He wrote, if you want someone to know the truth, tell them. If you want someone to love the truth, tell them a story. Well, I'm someone who loves truth because storytelling has been a part of my life as far back as I can remember. Mom and dad would put in a cassette tape with stories for me to listen to as I went to sleep at night. I just dated myself with that. Uh, Some of my favorites were Dr. Seuss stories. I've got the sneeches just burned into my brain uh, from all those nights of listening. But they would also put in tapes with Bible stories. I really loved hearing Elijah at Mount Carmel praying to God and God responding. It's one of my favorites. Those stories, they shaped my heart and my life to the point that even today, as I teach a literature class Wednesday mornings at New Life Camp, I get the privilege of showing students through stories, through literature, here's truth. Here's truth you can love. Here's truth that points you to God. You see, one of the most incredible ways God has revealed truth to us is through the Bible. And the Bible is a story. God certainly wants us to know truth, but even more, he wants us to love the truth. And he's given us an incredible story in his word to do that. And I bring all this up Because on a cursory reading of Hebrews chapter 9, what we just read, maybe all you see there is religious ritual stuff from the Old Testament. But as I've been reading through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, through this calendar year, I see so much more. I see the story of the Old Covenant being told through the verses we just read in Hebrews. In in the rituals, the liturgies, these sacred feasts, these sacred days, I see that God wanted his people to rehearse and celebrate their covenant and their story with him. Now to be clear, the author of Hebrews, he's bringing these things to our attention because he wants to make a very important point And we're going to highlight that point as well. But we might miss that point if we miss the stories that he's using to tell it. So here's an outline to give you a little roadmap of where we're going this morning. First of all, we'll look at the story of the tabernacle, the tent that he mentions. Secondly, we'll look at the story of the Day of Atonement. And then thirdly, we'll look at the story of the failed covenant. So let's dive in together and see the stories these verses are telling. So if you look back again in verse 2, we see that there's a tent that was prepared. We're jumping right into the story, so maybe we need to get our bearings a little bit if that doesn't uh, ring any bells for us. So 
the family of Israel, God's, God's chosen family, he promised through Abraham that your family, I'm going to bless you, and through your family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So they go into Egypt. They're there in Egypt for over 400 years. They're enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And we know from Exodus that God powerfully delivers them and promises to bring them to a new land, free of slavery, flowing with milk and honey. That doesn't mean that the rivers were milk and honey. It means there's a lot of cows and goats and bees in the land that produce those things. Uh, This is a place where they will be a kingdom of priests representing Yahweh to the nations. So this people coming out of slavery, that's all they've known. That's been their identity. They need a new identity. They need a new way of life. They need a new story. So God brings them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And there he meets with his people and he invites them into a covenant. They agree to the terms of that covenant and Moses goes up on the mountain with God for 40 days. And while he's there on the mountain, he gets this vision, this picture of the tent God desires Israel to make called the tabernacle. And God gives him very specific instructions on how this tabernacle is to be designed. And we read about that this last week in Hebrews 8.5, that he was to make everything according to that heavenly pattern, that vision that he received. And then later in Exodus, we read a detailed account of Israel making the tabernacle, and it's almost verbatim, word for word, exactly what God told Moses earlier. So you basically get the blueprints of the tabernacle twice in Exodus. Why do that? Why describe it twice? Why so much time spent on this? Because the tabernacle would be the place where God himself would dwell with his people. Listen to what God says in Exodus chapter 29, verses 44 through 46. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Don't miss this. Embedded here in the old covenant, this first covenant, we find something that should just blow our minds, should be staggering. That Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, wants to come down and be with dirt creatures. The one that the heavens cannot contain wants to be with them in a tent. And what was in this tent? Well, the author of Hebrews goes forward and he gives us a brief tour. So you see that later in verse 2. In the first section called the holy place, we find three objects. The lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. And I realize that the author says in verse 5 that he didn't really have time to go into detail about these things, but I think it's important for us to spend a little bit of time. Maybe we don't know about these things. Maybe we've not read about these things. So let's spend a little time on them so we're grounded 
in these objects and what the tabernacle represents in them. And once again, what we see here is not stuff. Or if that's too crass a word, it's not just sacred stuff. These objects are telling a story. So the first object you see is the lampstand. It's this tall, beautiful, made out of gold candle stand. It has seven branches coming out of it, and it's got seven candles on them, and it's fashioned to look like an almond tree. The table was a wooden table, but it was overlaid with pure gold, and on that table was the bread of the presence. It was 12 loaves of bread baked fresh every seven days. So what's the story being told with these objects? Well, the light from this lampstand would shine over the 12 loaves. It's a picture of God's divine light and presence always, always shining on the 12 tribes of Israel. And as the table held up and supported the bread, so the Lord would faithfully support and provide for Israel. And as the bread was renewed every seven days, Israel would be renewed and rest every Sabbath in the presence of the Lord. So the story that this first section and the, that these objects are telling is that Israel is supposed to find life and light and rest in Yahweh their God. In verse 3, we move into the second section, the most holy place, the holy of holies. And, it, and it's separated from the first section by this heavy curtain. Behind that curtain, we're going to find what we could call the hot spot of God's personal dwelling presence in the tabernacle. There's an altar of incense either right in front of that curtain or right behind it. And we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But there's also the Ark of the Covenant in this room. The Ark contains some items that, once again, aren't just Israelite collectibles from their time in the wilderness. They tell Israel's story and God's covenant with them. So first we see there's this golden urn containing manna or manna. You might ask, what is manna? Well, that's what Israel asked as well. The word manna in Hebrew literally means, what is it? Makes me think of a, that Hershey's candy bar, a whatchamacallit. We don't know what it is. We don't know what to call it. We call it a whatchamacallit. It's got that weird name. And what this, uh, what, what this urn of manna represents, it's from a story in Exodus chapter 16 when the people grumbled in the wilderness because they wanted food. I can relate. I like food. I would like to eat food too. But they took it to a different level when they grumbled against the Lord as though he was unable to provide for them or even wanted to. So God promised them bread. Every morning, they go out, and after the dew had evaporated, there'd be this white, flaky stuff on the ground. 
And they would gather that up like grain, and that's how they would make their bread. And the interesting thing is, whoever gathered this manna up would always have enough to eat that day. No more, no less. And whoever uh, tried to hoard it and, you know, have leftovers for the week, like you and I sometimes cook our food and try to get, uh, they'd find out the next day that the leftovers were spoiled and rotten. Manna was God's test for Israel to trust him, and trust him in a very specific way. Trust him that he would always provide enough. That he was always going to support them in their needs. So God commanded them to collect this urn of manna, to remember the story that he would be their provider if they would only trust in him. Next, we see Aaron's staff that budded. And this is uh, getting us down into verse 4. See, in number 17, there was a huge rebellion against Moses and Aaron and, and his priesthood. And God dealt severely with that. But immediately after that, God commands the leaders from the tribes of Israel to give their staffs to Moses, including Aaron's. And Moses would leave them in the tent, in the tabernacle, overnight, God said, I am going to reveal, once and for all, who is my anointed one? Who's my chosen one? So the people will stop rebelling. They'll stop questioning. So in the morning, they come back, and all the staffs are the same, except for Aaron's. Aaron's had budded like an almond tree, a lot like the golden lampstand in in the holy section. God said, take that staff, keep it in the ark as a reminder to Israel that in their story and in this covenant, God is the one who appoints the rulers and the priests. They do not appoint themselves. They do not get to do whatever they want. And then the last thing we see is the tablets of the covenant. Now, these are the ones we're pro this is probably the object we're most familiar with. This is, uh, these tablets held the Ten Commandments. We should think of the Ten Commandments as the basic terms of the Old Covenant. Now, God proclaimed a lot of commands for Israel, a lot more than these, but you can see in the commands he gave them that they all flowed in some way or form out of these Ten Commandments. They're in the ark as a reminder that these commands are part of the covenant that Israel entered into with their God to be his people, to live according to his wisdom, that they agreed that they were going to be his kingdom of priests to represent him to the nations. Now all these items were placed inside the ark, and then over the top was placed this lid. It's called the mercy seat, the atonement seat. We'll talk about that more in a little bit as well. It had these heavenly beings called cherubim uh, over it, worshiping the presence of the Lord there. So altogether, when you look at the design of the tabernacle and why God had it put together— you get a real sense that this sacred tent 
was serving another story and another purpose. It was designed to be an echo of the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, God and humans dwelt together. This tent, these items, these stories, they were meant to shape Israel and shape their identity as Yahweh's people and remind them constantly of their covenant with him. So that's the story of the tent. Let's move to number two, the story of the Day of Atonement. We pick that up in verses six and seven. Now that we have this sacred space, this tent, it's prepared, it's all been done. Now, verse six tells us, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. A little bit more of an Eden echo here. As God told Adam and Eve to work and keep the garden in Genesis 2, the priests were to guard and keep the tabernacle and its furnishings in this covenant. But they would only go into the first section. And only one time a year, one priest, the high priest, would enter the second section the most holy place. I want to pause here and identify something going on with the Torah. It's not just this random collection of stories and laws. It has been divinely inspired and expertly crafted to tell us something amazing about God. So the Torah, it's the Hebrew word for teaching or instruction or law. It makes up the five First, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, in Greek, this is referred to as the Pentateuch. And in the center of those five books, you have the book of Leviticus, the one we're all so eager to get to in our reading plans. We just can't get enough of it, right? And if you drill down toward the center of that book, you'll find in Leviticus 16 a sacred day for Israel called the Day of Atonement. We cannot overstate how important this day is in the center of God's instruction to his people. Dr. Michael Morales, in his book on Leviticus theology called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, wrote this. Without question, the Day of Atonement was at the heart of Israel's calendar and life. It is also the structural and thematic center of the Pentateuch, the literary summit to which and from which the narrative drama ascends and descends. Indeed, the high priest's narrated entry within the veil of God's house is, for the reader, an entrance within the inner sanctum of the Pentateuch's theology, the keystone of the system of forgiveness of sins. Wow. If you haven't read Leviticus 16, I would highly encourage you to do that this afternoon or this week. For now, allow me to tell you the story. Each year, on the seventh month, on the tenth day of that month, all Israel was commanded to take a Sabbath rest. It was a solemn rest. And the reason for it was atonement 
would be made for their sins, and they needed to give their entire focus to that end. So the high priest would wash himself, and he would put on this special garment from head to toe, made completely out of simple linen. No jewels, no decorations. He was going before the Lord in a humble state. He would sacrifice a bull for his own sins and failures before the Lord. And then he would take two goats from the people of Israel and set them there in the courtyard of the tent uh, of the tabernacle before the Lord. He would first enter the holy place and that golden altar of incense and before the curtain of the most holy place, he would light that up. It would fill up the room, including the holiest place, with a sweet fragrance, with smoke, because he's about to enter the hot spot of God's presence. And the smoke was meant to be a shield that would guard and protect him from the presence of the Lord so that he would not die. He would take some of the blood of the bull offering and he would sprinkle it on that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. This was to purify for his own sins and his family's sins. And then he would take one of the goats, kill it, enter the most holy place again, and sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat for the people of Israel. He would then take some of the blood and he would sprinkle the tent, the first section with it. He would go outside the tent and he would sprinkle the altar of sacrifice with it. All of this was done so that the tabernacle, this tent and all of its items would be purified of Israel's sins for that year. And then the high priest would take that second goat And he wouldn't kill it, but he would take it by the head and he would pray and he would confess before the Lord all the sins of Israel. And symbolically, he would transfer those sins to this goat. And then the goat would be led out into the wilderness and set loose, never to return. So what's the story that the Day of Atonement is telling here? Well, God wants to dwell with his people, but his people have already proven to be stubborn, rebellious sinners against him. So how can that arrangement work? How can can God be with them? Well, instead of the blood of Israelites being shed for their failures— The blood of a goat would atone, would cover their sins and provide atonement in the holy place. Instead of Israel experiencing exile from the Lord, a goat would bear their sins out away from the camp and be exiled in their place. Here in the heart of the old covenant in the Torah is the story of God's abundance abundant mercy and compassion and forgiveness for his people. And it's glorious. Let me stop here and say that, and I'm guilty of this, we as American Christians 
can sometimes shy away from the Old Testament. Not really, we don't even really read it, much less treasure it. And there are wondrous things for us to explore in the Torah because God himself was present and at work through it. In this story, we see God's very presence in it. And how can God be present somewhere in that situation not be glorious, not be incredible, not be something we want to tune into and study and learn from? But we might ask, if it was so glorious, why didn't it work? Why didn't it work for Israel? Why didn't the old covenant last? And this is the important point the author of Hebrews wants to make to us in these verses as we move into number three, the story of the failed covenant. You look in verses eight through 10, the writer is going to show us two reasons why this covenant failed. In verse eight, we see that while God wanted to dwell with his people, there wasn't direct access to him. There was the first section of the tent, and only the priests get to go into that section. None of the other Israelites get to go in. And then there's this thick curtain that's separating the second section that only the high priest gets to go into, and he only gets to do it once a year. And interesting enough, in this curtain, God commanded woven into the fabric are these images of cherubim. And we see in that that another, there's another echo of Eden. Because when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord and they were exiled, the Lord put cherubim at the entrance to the garden so that they could not re-enter. The author of Hebrews states that in all these things, the people are still in a state of exile. They're separated from direct life with God in the garden. And this tent, particularly this first section, is telling the story of that exile. He refers to the first section as a symbol for the present age. And I believe there's debate on what he means by that, but I, but I think what he means by that is the age of the old covenant, that as long as that covenant was standing, there was going to be that separation. But in verses 9 and 10, we see the second reason. If you look down there, it says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. As great as the old covenant was, as incredible as these stories of God's faithfulness and provision for his people were, as glorious as the Day of Atonement and all the sacred days of Israel that God commanded them to celebrate, as amazing as they were, none of it could perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It dealt with a lot of physical things, verse 10 tells us, but it couldn't transform their sinful human hearts. And that is the story of the Old Covenant. That's the story 
of Israel. Because even with God's personal presence with them at Mount Sinai, and that display was as vivid and powerful a display as God made ever in the presence of humans. The mountain is literally on fire. It's quaking. They hear the voice of the Lord. They know he has descended down on that mountain to be with them. And yet, after 40 days, the people make a golden calf and worship it right there in the presence of the Lord. And even with God's personal presence with them through the wilderness, leading them by a cloud of, uh, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, being with them in the tabernacle that they had prepared. They still grumbled and rebelled against him, and they accused his generosity as a ploy to destroy them. And even with God's personal presence with them in the promised land and later in the temple that was constructed in Jerusalem, for hundreds of years, they did what was right in their own eyes. They abandoned Yahweh. They gave themselves completely to idol worship, to greed, to violence. The prophet Ezekiel addresses this, and he doesn't mince words with them. He said that God found them like a young woman ragged in the wilderness, but that he lovingly dressed her, nurtured her, gave her royalty and beauty that shone out to all the nations. And their response? God says they abandoned him and offered themselves up to every other lover that came their way. God showed, God gave Ezekiel a a vision of what was happening inside the temple, the place where God himself was to be dwelling. And when he looks in there, he sees in that first section that it had been filled with images of creatures and priests worshiping them. The courts, the courtyard was filled with women crying out and praying to the god Tammuz. The men, the leaders of Israel, stood with their backs to the temple, symbolically, their backs turned against Yahweh, and they were worshiping the sun and the stars and every other thing. And all while that is happening in the valley around Jerusalem, they were sacrificing their own sons and daughters in a wicked corruption of worship. Israel committed heinous spiritual adultery against the Lord. They gave themselves fully to all kinds of sin. And so God, in his justice, gave them over to that sin and to its consequences. The Babylonian Empire attacked, the temple was destroyed, and the people were forced into exile. And as Jonathan taught us last week, this wasn't a surprise, or at least it shouldn't have been, because even God and Moses declared in Deuteronomy 31 and 32 
that they, the children of Israel, and their children would be completely unfaithful. They would break the covenant. Here's the, things about good, here's the thing about good stories that teach truth. They act as mirrors. We can read them, and we can hold up the mirror, and we can see ourselves in them. So look in the mirror of the story of Israel and the old covenant, and it won't take you long to find yourself and for me to find myself in that story. We're just as deceitful and desperately wicked. We can go through all the trappings and decorum of religious life as a church, but there is none of it that will transform a sinful human heart that's run away from the Most High God. And if we're honest with ourselves, the response that we would have to this and the story of Israel and the story of ourselves should be the same as the Apostle Paul, where he cries out, who will deliver me? Who will deliver us from this body of death? Well, in verse 10, we see that there's a time of reformation coming, a new story. Allow me to share some really good news by briefly spoiling a little of next week's passage in verses 11 and 12. Sorry, not sorry. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Dear brothers and sisters, the story of the Bible leads us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Always. Hallelujah. Jesus has given us a new story. He's given us a new covenant, a better covenant than the old. He is that great high priest who entered into the most holy place, the holiest of places, and he entered with his own shed blood on our behalf for our sin. He was the one, like the goat, that was sent outside the camp. He was crucified outside the city to bear our sins as far as the east is from the west. In him, we have the sure and better promises that God has come to dwell with us what is the name of Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us. John chapter 1 tells us the word dwelt with us. Literally, he tabernacled with us. And he did it to transform our hearts to serve him, to set us on fire with a passion for the living God, to glorify him. And every great story needs a great ending. And at the end of the story of the Bible, 
we see a new heavens and a new earth. And I'm God smacked that God himself says, my dwelling place will be with humans. I will come and be with them and we with him. No tent, no temple, no curtain. And praise the Lord, no sinful human hearts, no more exile, because Jesus will make all things new. We shall be one with him in the garden again. What a story. So let's land the plane this morning and respond to the word. Maybe you're like Israel this morning. Maybe you look the part of a Christian. You act the part. You take part in the regular rhythms of this church. But inside, you know you're dead in your sins. You know your heart hasn't been transformed. It's full of sin, and you're dead in it. And I would plead with you, come to Jesus. Come to the one who died and rose again to give you a living, beating heart, a new covenant, a new story. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, may the story of the old covenant continually drive us to Emmanuel, to God with us in our need for him. I confess, I've turned my eyes and focused on worthless things, lesser things. I need to love truth again this morning. I need the story of the scriptures this morning from cover to cover. I need the story of the crucified and risen King Jesus. So let us, as one body this morning, turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And may that be our story. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the story of your word. From beginning to end, you've made it clear how much you love us, how much you want to dwell with us, how much you want sin and death defeated. That even after we have sinned and sinned and sinned against you just like Israel, you have not abandoned us. You have given us a new covenant through the blood of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We exalt Jesus this morning. We say thank you for entering the holy place with your own blood on our behalf, for rising again from the dead that we might have life 
through you. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. O Spirit of the living Christ, I pray, if there be any in our midst who are still running from Jesus, who are still dead in their sins, draw them by your power. Draw them to the light of Jesus. Help them to see and trust in him as a good and perfect Savior. I pray you will help me and my brothers and sisters here this morning in the week ahead to fix our eyes on Christ, to fix our eyes on his story that we'll read it passionately and may it lead us again and again and again to Jesus who is worthy of our affection, our worship, in our entire lives. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. We love you. Amen.